Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 63, Thomas Belsham and Other Scholars on John 858. In the previous episode, I interviewed Dr. Dustin Smith about how to understand the statements in the Gospel of John, which many people read as implying the existence of Jesus before his conception. The main one that we focused on was the famous statement in John 8.58. And the question is, how are we to understand that statement? Are we to understand it as, Before Abraham was, I am. Or does he really mean, Before Abraham was, I am the Messiah. Which is it? And there's yet another interpretation, another minority interpretation, on which Jesus is simply claiming to have existed before Abraham. I don't take that one as seriously. I don't think it fits into the flow of the conversation very well. It would seem that a majority of present-day scholars, at least on the conservative wing of biblical interpretation, understand Jesus to be saying either that he's God himself or that he's divine, that he's teaching or at least hinting at his own deity here. I think that Dr. Smith effectively argued for the minority interpretation, which is that He's claiming that before Abraham was, he was already destined to be the Messiah. The reason I find Smith's argument compelling is because I think it really fits in with the actual context. It best makes sense of the actual conversation in John chapter 8, and it fits better with the whole Gospel of John. But I've noticed something that bothers me about a lot of Christian philosophers in particular. They don't want to actually get into arguments about the text. They want to take shortcuts They just either go with the majority view, or if there are two opposing views, they just say, well, which one's the more prestigious scholar, and they go with whatever his view is. I think that's a foolhardy way to proceed. I think you actually have to get your head into the author's mind and carefully weigh each reading and see which one best makes sense of what is and is not said. The fact is that fashions in theology change. An interpretation can be considered obvious that was never even considered in an earlier generation, and it can be that an earlier generation thinks that another interpretation is just obvious. You can't just go by whatever the majority thinks. That's only a starting point. And you can't just judge whichever one fits better with your own preferred theology or Christology. In this episode, we're going to hear from some other scholars. All of them are or have been well-known and respected scholars. The main one supports Dr. Smith's reading and adds some extra points. The others read the passage a bit differently, but some of the things they say, I think, actually support Dr. Smith's interpretation. Before we go to those, I want to ask you for a little favor. If you listen to this podcast through iTunes, would you consider going to the Trinity's podcast in the iTunes store and leaving a review there for us? If you do that, and your review is interesting and not profanity-laden, I will read it on the podcast. Reviews help more people to discover this podcast. It makes it more likely to show up in iTunes search results. In late October, we got a couple of good reviews. Both of them are five stars. One is from a user in the United States whose name is Earth Moth. And they say, quote, Great podcast, very informative, intelligent and objective. Good selection of guests, end quote. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
We have many more excellent guests coming up soon. Another five-star review is left in the Canadian iTunes store by the really interesting and intelligent Christian blogger Ben Naismith. And by the way, you should check out his blog. It's called Cognitive Resonance, and it's at bennaismith.wordpress.com. Ben is a professional pilot and a smart and independent-minded student of analytic theology. Ben says, quote, I really appreciate this podcast for its tone and content. This is certainly the most thought-provoking theology podcast that I listen to, and I appreciate Dale's ironic tone. As I've listened, I've had my default beliefs soundly challenged and met some interesting philosophers and theologians along the way who I wouldn't have otherwise discovered. Looking forward to many more episodes in the years ahead. Thanks very much, Ben. End quote. Thank you, Ben. Really appreciate your listening and your comments on the blog. So on to our scholars. In our previous episode, Dr. Smith mentioned that many readers see in Jesus' words, I am, a reference to God's statement to Moses in Exodus. Interestingly, this is rejected by some top scholars, including the leading 20th century commenter F.F. Bruce in his book, The Gospel of John, Introduction, Exposition, and Notes, which is a really nice kind of introductory level commentary on John. He writes, quote, in the Septuagint of Exodus 3.14, God's reply to Moses is, Ego eimi ha'on, I am the one who is. Tell them that ha'on, the one who is, has sent you. If a direct reference has been intended to Exodus 3.14 in the present passage, he means in John 8, one might have expected ha'on rather than ego eimi. It is more probable here that ego eimi echoes I am he, anihu, used repeatedly as a divine affirmation in Isaiah 44-55, through 55, and translated ego eimi in the Septuagint. For example, Isaiah 41 4-3-10, 13-25, So people want to see some heavy reference to the words of Yahweh in this text, but it's unclear whether that reference would be to Exodus or to Isaiah, I think it's far from clear that there is any such reference. As Dr. Smith explained, ego eimi is a common and easy to understand idiom in Koine Greek. It often just means, I'm the one you're talking about. It can mean, I am he, and the context of the whole chapter would suggest that the predicate that you should supply there is, I am the Messiah. Because it's such a common idiom, I don't know that it's strange enough to signal or clearly point to some famous text with a famous expression. But here's the thing, even if Jesus in John 8 is supposed to be sort of echoing the language of Isaiah, it's another question why he's doing that. And for this we turn to a book called John's Apologetic Christology, authored by Dr. James F. McGrath, who teaches religion at Butler University in Indiana, and he was a PhD student of the famous James Dunn in England. And by the way, he also has an interesting blog called Exploring Our Matrix, which you can easily Google. For his part, McGrath does agree that Jesus means to refer back to the Greek translation of Isaiah, and he does understand this as a reference to God's name, to the divine name. Now concerning this verse, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father instructed me. McGrath mentions an objection and gives a very nuanced reply to it. Quote, the most potent objection that has been raised against this view is probably that of Barrett. He writes concerning 828, 
Quote, it is simply intolerable that Jesus should be made to say, I am God, the supreme God of the Old Testament, and being God, I do as I am told. End quote. In response, McGrath continues, it is necessary to consider the background to the Johannine use of I am. When examined carefully, the Johannine I am sayings do not appear to represent a direct assertion that Jesus is none other than the God of the Jewish scriptures, so much as an elusive indication that he bears the divine name. Similar claims have been made for other figures in at least some Jewish circles, although nothing in the extant parallels is quite as extravagant as what we find in John. Nevertheless, one considers the statement by the angel in the Apocalypse of Abraham 10.8, quote, I am Yahweh, end quote, in light of the application of the very same name to God in the Apocalypse of Abraham 17.13, one can see how easily the statement of the angel could have been regarded by some as blasphemous and misconstrued as a claim to be God himself. But this use of the divine name by the angel does not represent a claim to be the God of the Old Testament, but to be the special, unique agent of God. The figure who bears the name of God does so as part of his empowering and commissioning as God's principal agent and, as we have already seen, agency bestowed an equality of authority to, coupled with a complete submission to, the sender. Thus, if I am on the lips of Jesus were synonymous with I am Yahweh to Kur, that means simply or absolutely, then Barrett's objection would be applicable. However, it appears more likely that the Johannine I am represents something rather subtler and more carefully nuanced than this. It portrays Jesus as the bearer of the divine name, the agent upon whom God has bestowed his name. John's portrait, understood in the way we have suggested, makes excellent sense in the context of contemporary thought. Of course, it may be that the Jews are presented here as misunderstanding Jesus to be simply asserting, I am Yahweh, but it seems more likely that the heart of the problem for them was the claim that the human being, Jesus, bore the name of God and exercised the prerogatives of God. The issue, once again, is whether Jesus is God's appointed agent who bears God's name and authority, or an upstart who claims divinity for himself, or has it claimed for him by his followers, and who is thus misusing God's name and insulting God. End quote. For the rest of this episode, we'll turn to the words of an influential biblical scholar of days gone by. This is the English Unitarian Thomas Belsham, who lived from 1750 to 1829. He was an influential minister and theologian. Belsham authored a number of interesting scholarly works. One of the most interesting is called A Calm Inquiry into the Scripture Doctrine Concerning the Person of Christ. His other writings include... It was basically a Unitarian study Bible edition of the New Testament. He didn't do the translation, but he led the charge on creating all the notes. He also published in four volumes the Epistles of Paul the Apostle, translated with an exposition and notes. That was in 1822. In short, Belsham was a real heavyweight scholar in his time, and in favor of his interpretation, he quotes somebody I regard as a super heavyweight, an all-time great scholar. And that's the great Nathaniel Lardner, who died in 1768. And so without further ado, we are going to hear from the first work of Belsham that I mentioned, A Calm Inquiry into the Scripture Doctrine Concerning the Person of Christ. Specifically from his chapter on the pre-existence of Christ, we'll hear the bulk of his discussion of John 8.58. I think he makes a lot of good points, and that it really complements and reinforces many of the points that Dr. Smith made in the previous episode. 
John 8:58. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, I am. This text is held up as a triumphant argument for the deity, or at least the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Quote, I that am truth itself, end quote, says Dr. Gussie in his paraphrase upon the text, quote, Assuredly tell you that how young soever I be, yet before Abraham was born, and before all worlds, I had a real existence as the unchangeable I am, who ordered Moses to speak of me to your fathers under that name, end quote. Quote, something more is implied, end quote, says Dr. Sherlock, Discourse, Volume 4, on Philippians 2.6, quote, in the expression, I am, then that he had long existed before his coming into the world. Something peculiar, as we may learn from the original use of the words, they being the very same which God made choice of to express his own eternity and power when Moses inquired after his name. Now what could tempt our Savior to use and apply this expression to himself when he knew that it had never been applied to any but God? End quote. Quote, I cannot imagine, says Dr. Doddridge in his note upon this text, quote, that if the Lord had been a mere creature, he would have ventured to express himself in a manner so nearly bordering upon blasphemy or have permitted his beloved disciples so dangerously to disguise his meaning, End quote. After the solemn appeal of these grave and learned men to this text as a decisive proof of the deity of Christ, who would suspect that, when our Lord made the declaration upon which this important conclusion rests, there is no reason to believe that he had the slightest allusion to the text in Exodus 3.14, without which every appearance of argument vanishes away. The truth is that the translators of the Old Testament, having rendered erroneously a passage in Exodus, and the translators of the New Testament, having also mistranslated a text in John, from a combination of the two, the unlearned or inadvertent reader draws a conclusion still more erroneous and pernicious than either or both the others. When Moses asks by what name he shall describe the Almighty to the Israelites, God answers him, Exodus 3.14, I will be what I will be, end quote, a phrase expressive of the immutability of the divine nature and counsels, which the public version renders, quote, I am that I am, end quote. In the text in John, our Lord says to the Jews, quote, Before Abraham was born, I was, end quote, for so it must be rendered in order to make sense, as expositors generally allow. But the public version renders the words, I am, which, being connected in idea with the same words in the English version in the book of Exodus, have led to the conclusion that our Lord assumed a title peculiar to the supreme being. He is therefore God, equal to, or one with, the Father. It is plain that no such inference would have been thought of had the translation of the two passages been more correct, nor can it be reasonably alleged that the words of our Lord are a citation from the Septuagint version and not from the Hebrew original, for the words in the Septuagint are ego eimi ha'on, I am the being, and such would probably have been the words of the evangelist had he intended to express in Greek an allusion to this text, which our Lord had delivered in his native, that is, the Syro-Chaldaic tongue. At this point, Thomas Belsham refutes two other interpretations of the text. One is that it should mean, before Abraham was born, I existed. And the other is the strange interpretation that before Abram shall become Abraham, I am he, that is, the Christ. He goes on then to argue for a fourth interpretation as correct. Here again, the words of Thomas Belsham. Quote, Before Abraham was born, I was he, end quote. 
that is, the Christ. Which is to say, before that eminent patriarch was brought into being, my existence and appearance under the character of the Messiah at this period and in these circumstances was so completely arranged and so irrevocably fixed in the immutable counsels and purposes of God that in this sense I may be said even to have existed. This is the interpretation proposed by the Unitarians. It is that which Dr. Clark calls, quote, languid and unnatural, end quote, which Dr. Harwood styles, quote, forced and futile, inane and chimerical, end quote, and at which Dr. Price, quote, wonders, end quote. It remains to be considered whether it be scriptural and true. In the first place, this interpretation well accords with the connection and context. The Lord declares, verse 56, quote, Your father Abraham longed to see my day, and he did see it, end quote. The Jews, foolishly or perversely misinterpreting his language, ask, quote, Hast thou seen Abraham? End quote. Our Lord never pretended that he had seen him, and not deigning to rectify this silly mistake, he goes on to establish the reasonableness of his assertion, which is to say, Abraham did foresee my appearance and the blessings of my kingdom. And this was possible, because though I was not then born, yet my appearance under the character of the Messiah, and all the happy consequences which flow from it, had been determined in the divine councils long before that patriarch was in existence. Secondly, the words, I am, ego a me, must be understood to mean and should be translated, I was. The connection of the words renders this construction necessary to the sense, quote, before such an event, I am, end quote, is without meaning unless the event be future. And in this instance, if the event referred to be future, it has been shown that the assertion would be trivial and unworthy of our Lord's character. Third, the ellipsis must be supplied by the word he, that is, he who cometh, or the Christ. For it has been already stated that the verb me is seldom if ever used to express simple existence, and wherever it occurs in this elliptical form, it is commonly and very properly supplied by the pronoun autos, he. John 4.26, quote, I who speak unto thee am he, end quote. John 9.9, quote, the blind man said, I am he, end quote. John 18.5, quote, I am he, end quote, that is, whom ye seek. Luke 21.8, quote, many will come in my name, saying, ego a me, I am he, end quote, or Christ. Compare Matthew 24.5, Mark 13.6, Matthew 14.27, Mark 6.50, John 6.20. The context in all cases easily determines the sense of the ellipsis. In the former part of this very discourse, the phrase occurs twice in a connection in which the translators of the public version, being under no bias to the contrary, have supplied the ellipsis properly. Verse 24, quote, If ye believe not that I am he, that is the Messiah, ye shall die in your sins. End quote. Verse 28, quote, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. End quote. It is the very same phrase which occurs in verse 58, which ought therefore to have been translated in the same form. Quote, Before Abraham was born, I was he, End quote. that is, the prophet who was to come, the Messiah. Fourth, in the language of the sacred writers, a being or a state of things is said to exist when it is the eternal immutable purpose of God that it shall exist at the time and in the circumstances which his infinite wisdom hath chosen and ordained. 
The Apostle Paul expressly teaches concerning God that, quote, He calleth those things which are not as though they were, end quote, Romans 4.17, an observation which he applies to the promise made to Abraham, Genesis 18.5, quote, I have made thee a father of many nations, end quote. That is, I have determined the future actual existence of this event. In the Old Testament, nothing is more common than to express prophecy in the language of history and to state future events as present or even past. Thus, Cyrus is addressed before his birth as though he were actually existing. Isaiah 45.1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, even to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden. End quote. And Babylon is represented as captured 70 years before the event. Jeremiah 51.41, How is Shishak taken, and how is the praise of the whole earth surprised? How has Babylon become an astonishment among the nations? These events at that time had no existence but in the divine purpose. Other future events are mentioned as already past. Exodus 15, 12-17, 1 Samuel 15, 28, and 28, verses 17 and 18, and in Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, the Supreme Being, in very sublime language, declares the absolute certainty of the accomplishment of His eternal purposes. Quote, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. My counsel shall stand. End quote. This prolepsis, this anticipation of future events, is particularly remarkable in the prophecies which relate to the Messiah, who is frequently represented as actually existing and executing his divine commission many ages before his public appearance in ministry. Isaiah 9, 6, quote, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, end quote. Chapter 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, end quote. And in that celebrated prophecy in the 53rd chapter, the humiliation of the Messiah, his rejection and sufferings are described throughout in the language of history. Quote, he is despised and rejected of men. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off out of the land of the living. End quote. Chapter 49, 5-10 the Messiah himself is introduced as speaking and stating the promise of God to him that, quote, he should be a light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth, end quote. And again, chapter 41, 1 through 3, quote, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, end quote. A prophecy which our Lord declares to have received its accomplishment in his own person. Luke 4:21. In these instances, and in other similar prophecies, the Messiah is described as actually invested with the insignia of his office and performing its duties. To the Jews, therefore, who are familiar with the language and imagery of their own prophets, our Lord's declaration of his existence as the Messiah before the birth of Abraham would not sound so harsh and offensive as it does to modern readers, who, not being accustomed to the bold, dramatic language of prophecy, are apt to understand that of actual existence, which the Jews would easily perceive to be figurative. The prophetic representations in the Jewish scriptures amply justify the language of Christ in reference to them. If the prophets described the Messiah as contemporary with them, Christ might with propriety speak of himself under that character as their contemporary. 
If Isaiah writes as having seen the Messiah, having heard his complaints, and having been witness to his labors, his miracles, and his sufferings, our Lord might with equal propriety represent himself under his official character as having existed in the days of Isaiah. If Abraham saw his day, he, as the Messiah, must have coexisted with the patriarch, and by parity of reason before Abraham's birth. But all allow that the prophetic representations of the Messiah's existence are figurative. They only express what existed in the divine purpose and imply nothing more than certainty of event. Let it then be granted that, when our Lord speaks of himself as the Messiah before Abraham was born, he means the same thing, that his language only implies that he was the Messiah in the divine purpose. No reasoning, I think, can be more conclusive. The same language of anticipation occurs in the New Testament, in which persons and things and states of things are described as actually existing, which only existed in the divine mind and declared purpose, particularly those which relate to the Messiah and the dispensation of the gospel. Of this language, a very remarkable instance occurs in Luke 20:38. Our Lord argues against the Sadducees the doctrine of resurrection from the declaration of God to Moses, Exodus 3, 6, quote, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, End quote. And to obviate the objection that the patriarchs were now, in fact, dead, he adds, quote, for all live to him, End quote. That is, as it is the determined purpose of God to raise them to life, they are, in his all-comprehending view, actually alive. The gospel and its blessings are represented as peculiarly the objects of the divine purpose and decree. Matthew 25:34, "Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." 1 Corinthians 2:7, "The mystery which God ordained before the world to our glory." Ephesians 3:9, "The mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God." This dispensation and its blessings have been promised and foretold by the prophets. Romans 1-2, The gospel of God which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. End quote. See also Acts 26, 22, and 23, 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. Of this dispensation, it was the divine purpose that Jesus should be the publisher and the medium through which its blessings were to be conveyed to mankind. 1 Peter 1:20, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Quote. Acts 2.23, Acts 4.27-28, John 1.44. Hence, he was the object of the Father's love. John 17.24, Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, End quote. and quote, had glory with the Father before the world was. End quote. Verse 5. And his violent death, constituting an essential part of the divine plan, he is represented, Revelation 13.8, as, quote, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, end quote. And the happy state of things under the dispensation of the Messiah being thus predestined in the divine counsels, Abraham is represented as having actually seen them 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. John 8.56, quote, your father Abraham desired to see my day. He saw it and was glad, end quote. The prophet of Isaiah, quote, saw his glory, end quote, John 12, 41. Believers are, quote, chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined to the adoption of children, end quote, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, quote, predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will, end quote, verse 11. And what is thus predestined is described as actually accomplished from the beginning of time, 2 Timothy 1, 9, 
quote, who hath saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, end quote. Our Lord describes his apostles as already in possession of the honor which he intended for them. John 17, 22, quote, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, end quote. And the Apostle Paul represents virtuous believers in general as already in possession of that felicity which God in his great wisdom and mercy has ordained for them. Romans 8, 29 and 30, quote, Whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. End quote. In purpose glorified is Archbishop Newsom's translation, with whom agree Grotius, Locke, Doddridge, and others. John 5.24, our Lord declares, quote, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. End quote. See also John 6.47 and 54. From this induction, it clearly follows that persons, things, and states of things are not infrequently described in the scriptures both of the Old and New Testament as actually existing, when they exist only in the divine purpose and decree. When therefore our Lord declares to the Jews, quote, before Abraham was born, I was he, end quote, the plain meaning is, I was marked out in the divine councils as the Messiah. Though this interpretation is by some expositors rejected with contempt, it is not destitute of support from the authority of many able and learned critics and divines. Quote, this, says Dr. Lardner on the Logos, page 14, may be thought a strong text for the pre-existence of our Savior's soul. But really, he there only represents his dignity as the Messiah, the special favor of God towards him, and the importance of the dispensation by him. It is a way of speaking resembling that in Revelation 13.8, Quote, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, end quote, explained by 1 Peter 1.20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. End quote. The Jewish people have a saying that the law was before the world was created. In like manner, the dispensation of the Messiah was before the dispensation of Abraham in dignity, nature, and design, though not in time. End quote. Quote, before Abraham was born, I was. End quote. Quote, I cannot see, says Mr. Cardale, True Doctrine of the New Testament, page 85, that this rendering must necessarily imply either his eternal generation or his actual existence before Abraham, but it should rather be understood, as I conceive, of God's eternal and wise designation or appointment of him to the office and work of a Savior, when, in pursuance of an ancient promise and prediction, he should be born into the world and appear and act as the Messiah. Nor does this appear to me such a low and languid sense as some have represented it, but the only true, rational, and consistent one, and perfectly consonant to the sacred writings both of the Old and New Testament, where the Spirit of God, who seeth the end from the beginning, often speaks of future things as already existing, or even as already past, to denote the certainty of their accomplishment. Isaiah 46.10 and 7.14, Romans 4.17 Quote, Our Lord, says Mr. Lindsay, sequel, page 222, without regarding the impertinent question of the Jews, goes on to confirm what he had been before saying concerning Abraham. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. That is, you need not be surprised at what I have asserted of the great account Abraham made of me, for I assure you that before Abraham himself was born, I am he, or the Christ. 
Not that he actually existed before Abraham, but only in the destination and appointment of God, to whom all live who are in any future time brought into being. End quote. Jesus did not say, says Dr. Priestley in his notes upon the text, either that he had seen Abraham or that Abraham had seen him, but only his day. All that he meant was that as the future glory and happiness of the posterity of Abraham was connected with his kingdom, and that this had been intimated to Abraham, this kingdom of his must have been intended in the divine councils before the time of Abraham. Christians are also said to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, though it is certain they had no being at that time. But in the eye of God, whatever is to be may be said already to exist. With him a thousand years are as one day, and one day as a thousand years. End quote. Quote, it was determined, says Mr. Wakefield, in his Inquiry into the Opinions of Christian Writers, page 129, in the councils of Providence, before the ages, before Abraham was, that the Messiah should appear, that Jesus of Nazareth should be the Messiah. So the names of the true servants of God were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8. Events determined are often spoken of in Scripture as already accomplished. Matthew 17, 11, 26.45. This manner of speaking with a view to the predeterminations of the deity was customary among the Jews. Quote, Before the world was created, the Lord Jehovah created the law. He prepared the Garden of Eden for the just. End quote. Targum of Jonathan on Genesis 3.24. In the conversation of which this clause is a part, says Mr. Simpson in his accurate essay upon this text, page 112, Jesus says, Your father Abraham earnestly desired to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This cannot signify that Abraham was alive while Jesus was speaking or during any part of his ministry. The Apostle Paul will assist us in the interpretation of this passage. Galatians 3.8, he says, The scripture having foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed before glad tidings to Abraham, saying, Through thee all nations shall be blessed. Abraham's seeing the day of the Messiah, therefore, means only his having very general information of the previous divine purpose and appointment that the Messiah should descend from him. In like manner, the clause, Before Abraham was born, I was he, signifies that previous to Abraham's existence, God had appointed that Jesus should be the Messiah. Since every event from the beginning to the end of time and throughout eternity is present to the omniscient mind of the deity, and since everything which he appoints will certainly come to pass, his original appointments are represented in the language of Scripture as being actually fulfilled before the events take place. End quote. And now Belsham wraps up his discussion of this passage. In the explanation of this important text, it was thought necessary to be thus particular because it is in a great measure decisive of the whole controversy, for if this declaration does not establish the pre-existence of Christ, no other passage can. And the impartial reader will consider whether, when our Lord had declared, quote, Your father Abraham saw my day, end quote, meaning thereby in prophetic vision, and when, immediately afterwards, he assigns as a reason, quote, Before Abraham was born, I was he, end quote, it be not most reasonable and most consistent with the connection to understand these words in the corresponding sense, not of real existence, but of existence in the divine purpose. Further, as it appears to have been common with the sacred writers to represent persons and things as actually existing, which existed only in the divine councils, it follows that wherever Christ or his glory is represented as existing previously to his appearance on earth, 
it may justly be understood of an existence in the divine purpose and decree only, unless the connection necessarily determines it to the contrary signification. And that's the end of Belsham's chapter. What do you think? Are you convinced? Are Belsham and Smith correct that Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I was even then the Messiah? Or should we agree with one of the currently more popular interpretations, that he's claiming to be God, or that he's at least claiming to be divine in some sense? Or do you agree with Dr. McGrath that Jesus is using God's name, but sort of hinting and implying that he's been given God's name as God's main agent? Or is it just pre-existence? Give us some feedback on the blog post for this episode, or upload some audio feedback for us. Next week, in the words of Monty Python, something completely different. We'll hear leading Christian philosopher Mark C. Murphy of Georgetown University give a conference presentation on perfect being theology. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.